Chapter 17 The Ramadan As Quigqueg's Ramadan, or fasting and humiliation, was to continue all day, I did not choose to disturb him till towards nightfall, for I cherished the greatest respect towards everyone's religious obligations, never mind how comical, and could not find it in my heart to undervalue even a congregation of ants worshipping a toadstool, or those other creatures in certain parts of the earth who, with a degree of footsmanism quite unprecedented in their own planets, bow down before the torso of a deceased landed proprietor merely on account of inordinate possessions yet owned and rented in his name. I say, we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things, and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagans and what not, because of their half-crazy conceits on these subjects. There was Quigquig, now, certainly entertaining the most absurd notions about Yojo and his Ramadan. But what of that? Quigquig thought he knew what he was about, I suppose. He seemed to be content, and there let him rest. All our arguing with him would not avail him. Let him be, I say, and heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head, and sadly need mending. Towards evening, when I felt assured that all his performances and rituals must be over, I went up to his room and knocked at the door, but no answer. I tried to open it, but it was fastened inside. Quig-quig, said I softly through the keyhole, all silent. I say, Quig-quig, why don't you speak? It's I, Ishmael. But all remained still before me. I began to grow alarmed. I had allowed him such abundant time. I thought he might have had an epileptic fit. I looked through the keyhole, but the door opening unto the odd corner of the room, the keyhole prospect was but a crooked and sinister one. I could not only see the part of the foot boarded of the bed and a line of the wall, but nothing more. I was surprised to behold, resting against the wall, the wooden shaft of Quigquig's harpoon, which the landlady that evening previous had taken from him, before our mounting to the chamber. That's strange, thought I. But at any rate, since the harpoon stands yonder, and he seldom or never goes abroad without it, therefore he must be inside, and no possible mistake. Quig, 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 quig. All still. Something must have happened. Apoplexy. I tried to burst open the door, but it stubbornly resisted. Running downstairs, I quickly stated my suspicions to the first person I met, the chambermaid. La, la, she cried. I thought something must be the matter. I went to make the bed after breakfast and the door was locked, and not a mouse to be heard. And it's all been so silent ever since. But I thought maybe you had both gone off and locked your luggage for safekeeping. La la, ma'am. Mistress. Murder. Mrs. Husey. Apoplexy. And with these cries, she ran towards the kitchen, I following. Mrs. Husey soon appeared, with a mustard pot in one hand and vinegar curette in the other, having just broken away from the occupation of attending the casters, and scolding her little black boy meantime. "'Woodhouse!' cried I. "'Which way to it? Run, for God's sake, and fetch something to pry open the door. The axe! The axe! He's had a stroke, depend upon it!' And so I was unmethodically rushing upstairs again, empty-handed, when Mrs. Husey interposed the mustard pot and vinegar curette and the entire caster of her countenance. What's the matter with you, young man? Get the axe, for God's sake, run for the doctor, someone, while I pry it open. Look here, said the landlady, quickly putting down her vinegar curette, so as to have one hand free. Look here, are you talking about prying open any of my doors? And with that, she seized my arm. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you, shipmate? 
in as calm but rapid a manner as possible. I gave her to understand the whole case. Unconsciously clamping the vinegar curette to one side of her nose, she ruminated for an instant, then exclaimed, No, I haven't seen it since I put it there. Running to the little closet under the landing of the stairs, she glanced in, and returning told me that Quigqueb's harpoon was missing. He's killed himself, she cried. It's unfortunate, Stig's done over again. There goes another counterplane. God pity his poor mother. It'll be the ruin of my house. Has the poor lad a sister? Where's that girl? There, Betty, go to Snarls, the painter, and tell him to paint me a sign. With no suicides permitted here and no smoking in the parlor. Might as well kill both birds at once. Kill? The Lord be merciful to his ghost. What's the noise there? You, young man, have asked there. And running up after me, she caught me as I was again trying to force open the door. I won't allow it. I won't have my premises spoiled. Go to the locksmith. There's one about a mile from here. But a vast, putting her hand in her pocket. Here's a key that'll fit, I guess. Let's see. And with that, she turned it in the lock. But alas, Quigquig's supplemental bolt remained unwithdrawn within. Have to burst it open, said I, and was running down the entry a little for a good start, when the landlady caught me again, vowing I would not break down her premises. But I tore from her, and with a sudden bodilyish run dashed myself full against the mark. With a prodigious noise, the door flew open, and the knob, slamming against the wall, sent the plaster to the ceiling, and there, good heavens. There sat Quigquag, altogether cool and self-collected, right in the middle of the room, squatting on his hams and holding Yojo on the top of his head. He looked neither one way nor the other way, but sat like a carved image with scarce a sign of active life. Quigquag, said I, going up to him, Quigquag, what's the matter with you? He ain't been sitting so all day, has he? said the landlady. But all we said, not a word could we drag out of him. I almost felt like pushing him over, so as to change his position, for it was most intolerable, it seemed so painfully and unnaturally constrained, especially as in all probability he had been sitting so for upwards of eight or ten hours, going to without regular meals. Mrs. Husey, said I, he's alive at all events, so leave us, if you please, and I will see to this strange affair myself. Closing the door upon the landlady, I endeavored to prevail upon Quigquig to take a chair, but in vain. There he sat, and all he could do for all my polite arts and blandishments, he would not move a peg, nor say a single word, nor even look at me, nor notice the presence in any of the slightest way. I wonder, thought I, if this can possibly be part of his Ramadan. Do they fast on their hams that way in his native island? Do they fast on their hams that way in his native island? It must be so. Yes, it's part of his creed, I suppose. Well, then, let him rest. He'll get up sooner or later, no doubt. It can't last forever, thank God. And his Ramadan only comes once a year, and I don't believe it's very punctual then. I went down to supper. After sitting a long time listening to the long stories of some sailors who had just come from a plum-pudding voyage, as they called it, that is, a sort of whaling voyage in a schooner or brig confined to the north of the line in the Atlantic Ocean only, after listening to these plum-puddingers till nearly eleven o'clock, I went upstairs to go to bed, feeling quite sure by this time Quigquig must certainly have brought his Ramadan to a termination. But no, there he was, just where I left him. He had not stirred an inch. I began to grow vexed with him. It seemed so downright senseless and insane to be sitting there all day and a half, the night on his hams in a cold room holding a piece of wood on his head. 
For heaven's sake, Quig Quig, get up and shake yourself. Get up and have some supper. You'll starve. You'll kill yourself, Quig Quig. But not a word did he reply. Despairing on him, therefore, I determined to go to bed and to sleep. No doubt before a great while, he would follow me. But previous to turning in, I took my heavy bearskin jacket, threw it over him, as it promised to be a very cold night, and he had nothing but his ordinary round jacket on. For some time, do all I would, I could not get into the faintest doze. I had blown out the candle, and the mere thought of Quigquag, not four feet off, sitting there in that uneasy position, stark alone in the cold and dark. This made me really wretched. Think of it, sleeping all night in the same room with a wide-awake pagan on his hams in the dreary, unaccountable Ramadan. But somehow I dropped off at last, and knew nothing more till break of day, when, looking over at the bedside, there squatted Quigquag, as if he had been screwed down to the floor. But as soon as the first glimpse of sun entered the window, he got up, with stiff and grating joints, but with a cheerful look, limped towards me where I had lay, pressed his forehead against mine, and said his Ramadan was over. Now, as I before hinted, I have no objection to any person's religion, be it what it may, so as long as that person does not kill or insult any other person, because that other person don't believe it also. But when a man's religion becomes really frantic, when it is a positive torment in him, and, in fine, makes this earth of ours an uncomfortable inn to lodge in, when I think it high time to take that individual aside and argue the point with him. And just so I now did with Quigquag. Quigquag, said I, get into bed now and lie and listen to me. I then went on, beginning with the rise and progress of primitive religions, coming down to the various religions of the present time, during which time I labored to show Quigquag that all these Lents, Ramadans, and prolonged ham squattings in cold, cheerless rooms were stark nonsense bad for the health, useless for the soul, opposed, in short, to the obvious laws of hygiene and common sense. I told him, too, that he, being in other things such an extremely sensible and sagacious savage, it pained me, very badly pained me, to see him now so deplorably foolish about his ridiculous Ramadan of his. Besides, argued I, fasting makes the body cave in. Hence the spirit caves in, and all thoughts born of a fast must necessarily be half-starved. This is the reason why most dyspeptic religionists cherish such melancholy notions about their hereafters. In one word, quick-quag, said I, rather digressively, hell is an idea first born on an undigested apple dumpling, and since then perpetuated through a hereditary dyspepsias, nurtured by Ramadans. I then asked Quigquag whether he himself was ever troubled with dyspepsia, expressing the idea very plainly so that he could take it in. He said no, only upon one memorable occasion. It was after a great feast given by his father, the king, on the gaining of a great battle, wherein fifty of the enemy had been killed by about two o'clock in the afternoon, and all cooked and eaten that very evening. No more, Quigquag, said I, shuddering. That will do for I knew the inferences without his further hinting them. I had seen a sailor who had visited that very island, and he told me that it was the custom, when a great battle had been gained there, to barbecue all the slain in the yard or garden of the victor, and then, one by one, they were placed in the great wooden trenches, and garnished round like a pilau, with breadfruit and coconuts, and with some parsley in their mouths, were sent around with the victor's compliments to all his friends, just as though these presents were so many Christmas turkeys. 
After all, I do not think that my remarks about religion made much impression upon Quigquag, because, in the first place, he somehow seemed dull of hearing on the important subject, unless considered from his own point of view, and, in the second place, he did not more than one-third understand me, couch my ideas simply as I would, and, finally, he no doubt thought he knew a good deal more about the true religion than I did. He looked at me with a sort of condescending concern and compassion, as though he thought it was a great pity that such a sensible young man should be so hopelessly lost to evangelical pagan piety. At last we rose and dressed, and Quigquag, taking a prodigiously hearty breakfast of chowders of all sorts, so that the landlady should not make much profit by reason of his Ramadan, we sallied out to board the Pequod, sauntering along and picking our teeth with halibut bones. Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.